man, I got to tell you, it is, uh, it is good to see you guys. I don't know how your week's been, but uh, been a little rough for me, been a little hectic for me. Sometimes it's good to be so hectic that you can't really think and dwell on certain things, you know, especially with such a big transition as we went through this past week. But uh, I'm really glad that you guys all came out here tonight, whether you are regular attenders, whether you are part of this ministry, or whether you're a guest. It is just very, very good to see everyone's face here tonight. I mean that. Uh, open up your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. So we are kicking off a brand new study tonight. It's a study on Revelation, the book of Revelation, and what the Bible has to say about, man, how far uh, are we until the end times? Real quick, does anybody need a study sheet before we go? Or, or a Bible? First Thessalonians chapter 2. So we're starting this study off tonight, and honestly, I think it comes at a perfect time. Um, no, I did not call President Putin and ask him to try to start World War III, but it kind of does seem to, to help us uh, as far as putting things into context and really considering, man, he just warmed up his nukes this past week. What if? What if? What if America actually becomes a third world country before the rapture of the church takes place, before Jesus Christ comes back and calls all of those who are his own home before just seven years of literal hell are unleashed upon this planet? What if that were to happen before the rapture of the church? Very well could be a possibility, and I think we're, we might touch on that at some point during this series. But as I'm just thinking about everything we've come across, not only just with uh, you know, planning another church where we lost a, a good chunk of our, of our kids, but even just, again, as I've mentioned, we just came off a study on evangelism, the heartbeat behind evangelism. Why do we want to tell others about who Jesus Christ is? Why do we want to share the gospel, share our faith in Jesus Christ? And not only that... When we get the heartbeat behind it, when we know why we should be doing these things, we take a look at the fundamentals of how to actually go about doing that. And we just got done with that series not too many Wednesdays ago. And so as I think about evangelism, I think about the heartbeat behind it, as Pastor Tom said this past Sunday, you know, there's only two things that are going to last for eternity. The Word of God and what else? Souls of men. Souls of men, that's it. Literally everything else on this planet is going to burn up one day. And it is certain that we can't take anything of our own material-wise with us when we leave heaven. No, it's just the faith that we have in Christ and who else is coming with us because we were willing to stand out and share our faith to others. And so when I think about that and I think about why we're doing this study on the book of Revelation, it just made perfect sense as far as getting us in the mindset of we really don't have a lot of time left. And I hope that will become more apparent to you as we open up the pages of this book and as we start diving in. But before we even do that, I wanted to, to ask you guys real quick, uh, just to kind of get some, some feedback, kind of see where everybody's at. Uh, tell me something that you know or that you have heard about the book of Revelation. Now, it doesn't mean you have to be right on it. If you've just heard of something about the book of Revelation, feel free to share it. I just want to know, what is your perspective? Uh, what is it that your perception is on the book itself? Connor? Oh, warnings. Warning, yeah. Absolutely, it's loaded with warnings. Brandon? Like signs and seals. 
stuff like that, like a lot, a lot of pictures of that you can get. Yeah, a lot of signs and seals. Yeah, we're gonna talk about a number tonight, actually. There's numbers through it, there's seals in it, there's vials, there's signs. It's very much a, a lot of what you saw happening in the Old Testament that you don't really see happening in the New Testament shows up in this book. Good point. What else? Anybody, anything at all, whatever you heard. Heard about the locusts? Yeah. Is it an Apache helicopter? Is it not? <laughs> Is it an actual uh, locust that's the size of a horse? Those things terrified me when I was a kid. When I heard about it, I'm like, what on earth is that? James. I was going to say, the book of Revelation gives me hope. It's actually really good. We're going to talk about that a little bit tonight as well. Yeah. Gives you hope. If you have the hope of Jesus Christ in you, absolutely. You have nothing to fear because most of what we're going to see in this book, we're not going to be here for. That is if you know Jesus Christ. If you know for a certainty that if you were to die tonight, you would be in His presence and you would not be eternally separated from Him, then this book should give you hope because you have nothing to fear. But if you don't know, if you don't have that hope, different story. Andy, yes? Judgment. Judgment. Lots of judgment being dished out. It is the time of judgment. Specifically, it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. Man, that's good. What else we got? Kendall. Kind of like motivation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the reasons why we're doing it. Yeah, Sammy. Like tribulation for the lost. Tribulation for the lost. Yeah. Carson. It talks about the church ages. It does. Stop jumping ahead. <laughs> That's going to be my closer. Sorry. How dare you share what I told you to share? Because <laughs> I just want him to hear that. And definitely not anybody else on the podcast. All right. There is a lot of things that are going on in the book of Revelation. There's a lot of things, and hopefully we're going to try to tackle all of it. I'm projecting this study to be about a 15-week class, so it should take us right up to camp, right in the middle of June. Um, but man, we'll dive into the, the nitty-gritties of this book in a little bit. But I'll tell you what, though. It doesn't matter what it is that you have heard. It doesn't matter what it is that you for sure believe. It doesn't matter what you think about the book of Revelation. If it's not backed up by what the Word of God says... If it's just some opinion that you've heard because you heard some guy behind a pulpit say it or you've read some book or you've read some article online, if it's any of those things, if anything that you heard or believe about the book comes from any of those sources outside of God's Word, I'm asking you just put that out of your mind. Because honestly, when it comes to understanding what the Bible says, it's always best to let the Bible interpret itself. And we're going to see that right out of the gate with point number one tonight. Not, I'm not jumping ahead, but we get to point number one. You'll see what I mean by that. We want to let the Bible be the Bible because God wrote the Bible in order to make things clear for us. He didn't make it so that it could be cryptic, so it could be kind of, what does that mean? Does he mean this? Does it really mean that? He didn't, mean, he didn't write the Bible to be like that at all. He wrote the Bible because... Just like we talked about, the only two things that are going to be here forever, the Word of God and souls, he wrote the Bible because he loves people. And he wants people to know what his Word clearly says so that we can know what is expected of us. 
But when it comes to the things in Revelation, I had you turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 for a reason, because there is a key verse that I wanted to kick things off with tonight, and I wanted it to stand out clearly, because everything we look at over however many weeks this class goes, we need to filter everything through this verse, and we need to all make sure that we are doing what this verse says. Can I get a reader for verse 13? Sam, loud and clear. For this cause also we thank we God without ceasing, because when he received the word of God, which he heard of us, he received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. There's a lot of things that are said, taught, published about the book of Revelation, and a lot of it comes from men. Anything that I present up here to you tonight... If it is not backed up, or for the course, the duration of this entire course, if it is not backed up by multiple places in Scripture, then don't believe a word of it. Don't believe a word of it. If anybody, for that matter, tells you anything about anywhere in the Bible that is not also backed up with evidence in the Bible, don't believe them. The Bible is very clear about that. God wrote this book... We are to receive the words of this book, not as though man wrote it, but as it is in truth, the word of God. But look what it says it will do to you if you believe. What does it say? If you believe it, it has the power to do what? Effectually work in you. I don't know about you guys, but... There were times where I was, uh, you know, 6th, 7th, 8th grade, where I would try to read the Bible, where I would want to know more about God. But it just seemed like, man, this book just has no power in my life. Is God even real? Is this book even genuine? Because it's not really doing what I need it to do. We always come to God on our terms. And we want God to bow to our whim. What this verse is telling us is that, no, that's not how it is. We need to come to him on his terms, and we need to believe what he says. The rest will make sense. It will effectually work in us if we believe it. It will change our life. It will cause us to be motivated to see our lost friends at school saved, to see our lost family members saved, whatever activities or jobs you might have. If we believe it, it will have the power to change our very lives. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? It just said it. We just read it. If you believe this book, you believe the things that we're going to look at, God will make it abundantly clear to you, not only that it is truth, but it'll make it abundantly clear to you what he wants you to do. And with that in mind, let's go ahead and turn over to Revelation and dive right into this thing. Keep that verse in the forefront of your mind. If it helps you to write down 1 Thessalonians 2.13 at the top of the header in your Bible where it says the revelation of John, then do it. It's not a sin to write in your Bible. Even if you borrow a Bible tonight, write it down in there. So tonight we're going to look at just a kind of an introduction and some background information about the book of Revelation. And at the end of tonight, we are actually going to read through chapter 1. But I love it. Actually, all of this background and contextual information we're going to look at, all of it's found within the first couple verses of the book of John. 
or the book of Revelation, sorry, which is kind of a rarity because sometimes when you go to some books of the Bible, you don't really know what the theme or what the headline verse is until you start reading a couple chapters in. You don't really know what the book is about entirely. But Revelation, he makes it abundantly clear to us right out of the gate what the goal and the theme of this entire book is. And we're going to see that as we go through it tonight. So the first point on your outline, the definition of Revelation. You might think, oh, it's something secretive. It's something apocalyptic. And even though it's talking about what we call the apocalypse, you know that word apocalypse or apocalyptic? You know what that word actually means? Hidden. It's the opposite of what revelation literally means. So on your outline, revelation, it literally means to reveal to divulge or give away information, to disclose, to expose. In other words, if something is hidden, if something is apocalyptic or secretive, this will reveal it and expose it. It means to make known for all to see. What I'm surprised I didn't hear from anybody really was anybody saying like, man, this book is just confusing. It is the most mind-boggling book. I don't know what this means. I read this and I don't understand it at all. I don't understand how I fit into this. I don't understand how it fits in with the country or with the things that are going on in this world. I have no idea. And if you feel that way and you just didn't share it, it's okay because you're not alone. Most of the world feels that way about this book where they have absolutely no idea what's going on, and they feel that it's just this very cryptic, very mysterious, very dark and twisty and turvy kind of a book that no one can know what it really means. But if that were the case, do you think that God would have called the book something else? He would not have called it the book of Revelation, where things are to be revealed. That's very, very key. And not only that, look at verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. The first five words, the revelation of who? Jesus Christ. Now, those of you who are in here today and you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you know Him and He knows you. Do you think that knowing who God is, who Jesus Christ is, that's something that Jesus wants to keep secret and hidden from anybody? No, not at all. But the thing I love about it, it's not just the revelation of the end times. It's not just the revelation of how things are going to go in the near future here. It's the revelation of Him. More on that in a little bit, but this is huge. Don't miss that. Mark that down. I just find it funny that most of people in the, in the world, not funny, ha-ha, but just funny, interesting, most people, when they come to this book, it is the most confusing and just perplexing book that they've ever come across. They don't know the answer to it. But God says, no. You read this book, you will know what it says if you believe it. And if you believe it, it will effectually work in you. Next, the author. Anybody want to take a stab in the dark as to who that is? John. The Apostle John. The son of Zebedee. He's called the beloved disciple of Jesus Christ. It's one of the twelve. 
If you have your pens and you guys have some space there, get ready to write because I'm going to give you guys some verses that aren't on your outline, but check these verses out. You know what's interesting about John? He's really the perfect guy to write this book. The perfect guy to write this book. You know why? Not only is he the beloved disciple, which you find that in John chapter 20, verse 2, if you want to write that down. You see it also in chapter 21, verse 7. Not only is John the beloved disciple, but he is the disciple that in John 13, 23, at the Last Supper, he's found laying his head on the heartbeat of God himself, Jesus. He's the only disciple in all of Scripture to have gotten that close to the heart of God. The only one. He's the closest one out of all of the twelve. And not only that, but in John 19, 26, when all others forsook Christ at the cross, when Christ was led away to be arrested and to be falsely accused for crimes he did not commit, and then where he was going to be crucified for something he did not do, but he went willingly because even though the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Romans didn't know why they were doing any of this, God knew what he was doing. He knew that he had to march up that hill of Golgotha. He knew that he had to take up that cross. He knew that he had to lay down his life because what he was doing was to pay the price for sins of all the world, including yours and mine. That's what he was doing. But when all others forsook him, John stayed with him. You see that in John 19, 26. Even Peter? Yeah, even Peter forsook him, left him. High and dry. And in John chapter 20, verses 2 through 4, you know what you find also interesting about John? What makes him very unique and different from any of the other disciples? That when they heard news that Jesus Christ was risen again from the grave, the disciples started running full force, with, sprinting with everything they had to go to the tomb to see, is it real? Is this actually the case? Even Peter... The guy who denied Christ three times in public. He's running full force to go to that tomb. He couldn't outrun John. He didn't have the energy or the zeal or the zest that John had. John couldn't wait because he knew. And he stuck with him to the bitter end. You know what else is unique about John? In John 19, verse 26, he was assigned the job for caring or for caring for Jesus' earthly mother. Jesus didn't give that responsibility out to any of the other twelve, except John. John is the beloved disciple. He was unlike any of the other twelve. But you know what makes him the most qualified to write the book of Revelation? It's this. His gospel, the gospel of John, presents Jesus Christ as God in human flesh. I don't know if you guys have seen this before or not, but out of the four gospels, it's the same story, but just told from four different perspectives. You have the book of Matthew, the first gospel in the New Testament, and this book is written from a Jewish perspective, from a Jewish tax collector, to present Jesus Christ as the Jewish King of Israel. More references to the Old Testament in this book than any of the other four Gospels. 
But Matthew writes from the perspective of looking at Jesus as the king who was going to come and set up his throne in Israel. That's why it has that very much of a, of a Jewish tone. You look at the book of Mark. You know what's interesting about the book of Mark? This gospel presents Christ as a servant. It's the shortest gospel out of all four of them. Short, quick, to the point. Gets down to business like a servant should. Written from a perspective of a Roman mindset. Then you got the Gospel of Luke, which looks at Jesus Christ and presents him as a man. His humanity. That even though he were God, man, he went through everything. Anything? How many of you guys dealt with temptation of some kind this week? Whether it was in thought, word, or deed. Didn't say you gave into it. Just that you dealt with it. You struggled with it. You know what's interesting? The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4 that Jesus Christ was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. So whatever it is you've gone through this week, whatever it is you're going through currently, whatever it is that you are going to go through, Jesus Christ understands. He knows and He gets it. Because He became a man. And Luke's Gospel very much presents Christ as a man. But the Gospel of John presents Jesus not as a king, not as a servant, not as a man, although it does, but John specializes on presenting Jesus as God in human flesh. You know what I love about that? John wrote three other books in the Bible. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. You know what all of them highlight and present a beautiful picture of? It's something called, if you want to write this down too, the deity of Christ. That's a big word that's used in theological circles, but deity just means godness. Christ is God in human flesh. All three books, all three letters that John wrote, hammer the deity of Christ. The fact that Jesus was no ordinary man who came to this planet. But He was God in a human body. Excellent. Excellent job. John is the perfect man to write the book of Revelation that is revealing who Jesus Christ actually is. Next, the time of writing. This is where things are going to get real interesting. It's 90 to 96 A.D., because that's when John was alive. He's actually exiled on an island called Patmos because of his testimony of serving the Lord, of being a faithful witness to Jesus Christ. And he's exiled. He's on a, it's a prison island. It's kind of like if any of you guys have been to Alcatraz or know of Alcatraz out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean off of the San Francisco Bay Area. It was kind of like that. It was an island prison that they sent people like Christians but something that's very, very interesting. Historically speaking, yeah, 90 to 96 A.D. But it also says, as we're going to read in verse 10 in a little bit, that John wrote this on the day of the Lord. More on that momentarily. The theme. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ and the day of the Lord. Hmm. 
All right, so I guess we should probably take some time to look at We won't look at yet how he did it, but we're going to look at what the day of the Lord actually is. So specifically speaking, again, take some notes down. There should be some space there for you guys to check this stuff out later. Specifically speaking, the day of the Lord is the day when Jesus Christ returns back to this planet, sets his feet on top of Mount Zion, that mountain splits in two, and by force... He who was slain, and every eye that pierced him shall see him, he is going to come back here by force and take back over this planet and set up his throne in Israel. That is the day of the Lord specifically. It's the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's what we call it. But it doesn't just work out specifically to be that. As you study out the Word of God, there's also a general ideology behind what the day of the Lord is. You'll sometimes see the day of the Lord referred to as that day or, uh, or the day. But generally speaking, you know what you'll also find in Scripture? It says the phrase, those days. Those days. So specifically speaking, the day of the Lord is the day when Jesus Christ comes back. Generally speaking, it is a series of days that starts with the rapture of the church where Jesus Christ comes down into the air, calls up all who are genuine, born-again, blood-washed Christians, raptures them up into the air, and then taking us into a seven-year tribulation period where there's judgment enacted upon the earth. And then you, that's where you have the Antichrist's reign, and we'll get all of that in the weeks to come. Again, we're setting a foundation right now. We're setting the context of this book. And then after that seven-year tribulation where Jesus Christ comes back down and makes war with those who rebelled and disobeyed the gospel of Christ, He then sets up His kingdom for a thousand years. There's a lot of things that are happening right there. A thousand-year reign, Him coming back, the seven-year tribulation, the rapture of the church in reverse order. And all of that, that, those and that, combined into one word. How about that? All of that is considered the day of the Lord. We're going to check some out here. Hold your place here. Turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3. We'll see how this works out. 2 Peter chapter 3. But again, if you want some scripture to go with that day and those days, Zechariah 14.4 I have up here on the screen for you. This is specifically talking about the day, the actual literal day when Jesus Christ comes back. It says, And His feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof. Can you imagine seeing that? Can you imagine seeing that? A mountain actually splitting in two because one man stepped on the top of it? Well, guess what? If you're in here tonight and you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are going to see that day. You'll be riding behind Him as the Calvary. And in the midst thereof, toward the east and toward the west, the mountain splits, and there shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove towards the north, and half of it toward the south. This verse is speaking specifically about the day when Jesus Christ comes back. But not only that, look at 2 Peter in chapter 3, look at verse 10. Can I get a reader for that? Kendall. Shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. 
the day of the Lord. It's going to come as a thief in the night, which means that people who are constantly saying, oh, I'll get saved another day. Oh, I'll believe this book when I'm older. Well, guess what? If you knew that if a thief was going to come into your house tonight and break into your house and take your stuff or do worse, don't you think you'd be prepared and ready for him? You would. Hopefully you would. To either run or stand your ground and fight. But you know what Jesus tells us here in this verse? Through Peter, we're not going to know when that day is going to come because it's going to catch us all by surprise as a thief in the night. I'm not anticipating someone coming into my house tonight and breaking in, but I know it could happen. So I prepare myself and I ready myself. I have Andy stand guard at my bed every night. Man, <laughs> sing me a bedtime lullaby. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in the witch. And it talks about everything again that we're going to read about in Revelation, but it's the day. Oh, no. My iPad died. That had my notes on it. No worries, I got a backup here. I should have it memorized. I'll be fine. But generally speaking, check out this verse. Talking about those days. This is Matthew 24. And it says, except those days should be shortened. Talking about the people who are going to be here after the church is raptured. It says, there should no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. More on that when we get to Revelation 4 through 19. If you're thinking, oh, when the rapture of the church happens, if all of my friends who are Christians just suddenly disappear, then I'll know I can trust the Bible. Then I'll get saved. If that's what you're waiting for, uh, you might want to pay attention to that last line. Except the days be shortened. Because that's the only way you're going to be saved if you make it through the tribulation. More on that later. But he goes on. Maybe. In verse 29, he says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. In other words, these all take place over a series of days. But it's still called the day of the Lord when you look at other places in Scripture. So you get into kind of an understanding of the day of the Lord, how specifically it's the day that Christ comes back, the second coming of God. But generally speaking, it's a series of days that lasts a little over, if you count the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ, and you count the seven-year tribulation period, it lasts a little over 1,000 years. That's kind of weird that that would be considered a day. You guys still in 2 Peter chapter 3? Well, go ahead and look up at verse 8. Can I get a reader for that? Carson, loud and clear. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. How is it possible that the day of the Lord can generically or generally speaking be considered a multitude of days or about a thousand years worth? How is that possible? Well, from God's perspective, He's not bound by time. From Him, a thousand years on this earth, it's the equivalent of like one day to Him. One day for us is a thousand years. He's not bound by time. That's the whole gist of that verse. But this kind of lets us in on a little secret of Bible study. That 
thousand year millennial reign plus seven years of tribulation on this earth after the rapture of the church? Yeah, generally speaking, that's called the day of the Lord. And as we saw, John is writing from that perspective. How? Now that we know what the day of the Lord is, and we know that John's writing on the day of the Lord, we're getting to somewhere as far as, far as how is this possible? How is it that John was able to do just that? But going back through your study sheet here, the key verses, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, verse 7, verse 10, verse 19. How about that? Some of the most critical, important verses to your understanding of unlocking the secrets of this book are found right here in chapter 1. And then chapter 19, those are the passages talking about Jesus Christ actually coming back, the second coming. And it's no, no coincidence that the key chapter to this book is chapter 1. Man, you came out to a good night then. The basic outline, and this is where things might get a little tricky. I'm going to try my best to uh, draw this out on the board, but if I fall flat on my face with it, or it confuses the living crap out of all of you, I got a more formal slide that I'll show you next. So the basic outline, this is very, very interesting how the book of Revelation breaks this down. You know how you can just simply just in its most basic, fundamental, elemental terms, give an outline for the book of Revelation? It's simple. You look for characteristics and traits that show up and are very, very unique. In this case, there's only two times in the book of Revelation heaven opens up. Heaven opens up in chapter 4, and you see that someone goes up in the air after hearing a voice that says, come up hither, come up. So if you had this big timeline, that is the book of Revelation, you have a division here where someone is told to go up because heaven opens. And then the second time that happens is over here in Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, where heaven opens up, and this time, as we just mentioned a little bit ago, someone is coming down. When you have two splits like this, it beautifully breaks up the book of Revelation into how many sections? Three. Someone comes down from heaven. Revelation 19.10 to the end. And you have this in Revelation chapter 4. Now let's keep it consistent. Heaven opens up, someone goes up. Heaven opens up, someone comes down. Three beautiful sections here. Now let's look, you guys flip on back to Revelation chapter 1. So we got these three basic outlines. We got these three divisions of the book. So what? We're going somewhere with this. We're finding out how it is possible that John was able to write this on the Lord's Day. We're on chapter 1. Look with me in verse, uh, verse 10. Can I get a reader for that? Sammy. And I was in the spirit of the Lord's Day, and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. 
as of a trumpet. He's in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Wait a second, I thought you just said that he's on this exiled island called Patmos in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. Yes, bodily form he is. Here he lets us know that while he's exiled on this island, a prisoner... And I believe if you look at some of the history of what people have written about him at this point in time, he had been doused with uh, boiling oil and he was basically an invalid the rest of his life. He was crippled at this point in time because of the persecution he suffered being a Christian during the days of Nero as emperor. That's if you believe the historical account. We'll know one day when we see him. doesn't really matter here. But he's physically on the Isle of Patmos, and he tells us here in verse 10 that he was in the Spirit. So we see here that John is now having an out-of-body experience, and he's on the Lord's Day. Which is it? Is it the Lord's Day specifically where Jesus Christ is coming back? Or is it this lengthy period of time that starts with the rapture? Well, hold your place here and look over at chapter 4, and let's see what chapter 4 has to say about when heaven opened up that first time and someone went up. Who's the someone that went up? Look at verse 1. After this, I looked. Who's the I here? It's not Jesus. It's John. I looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me which said, what? And I will show thee things which must be hereafter. You trace that phrase come up hither throughout Scripture, you'll find that every time it shows up, it is in direct connotation to the rapture of the church, where Jesus Christ comes back in the air and pulls all of those who know Him, all of those who have trusted Him as Savior, out. It's the rapture of the church. That's what's going on here in chapter 4. And we already know from chapter 19.10 that this is the second coming. So it stands the reason that if John is over here in 90 A.D., stick figure John, whose body is bigger than his head, he is transported, as we just saw in Revelation 1.10, in the Spirit on the Lord's Day which starts with the rapture of church, generally speaking. Do you see that? Okay, so why is that significant? How does that help unlock our understanding to the book of Revelation, especially as it pertains to these three divisions that we have here? Oh, 1910 and then 1 to 3. How does that help us? Flip back to chapter 1. Here's the key. Verse 19. He just told us in verse 10 that he's in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Somebody read verse 19 to get the understanding of what the instruction is that Jesus Christ himself gives him. Andy. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Now, when did Jesus tell him that, Andy? When he went up. Oh. When he's in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Why are you apologizing for? I, I didn't know it was rhetorical. It wasn't rhetorical. No, you did good. Thank you. You did good. A plus for the day. He's in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and Andy just read so eloquently that he's to what? Write the things which he hath seen, the things from this perspective which are 
So from John's perspective, it is the present tense. And he tells him to write the things which shall be hereafter. Huh. You know what's interesting about Revelation chapter 4? After chapter 3 ends, you know what word you will not find anywhere else in the Bible until you get to hear Revelation 19? Anybody want to take a stab in the dark? Church. Sam? Church. church. You will not find... You see a church mentioned a whole lot of times here. And you see church mentioned around here coming back with Jesus. But the church is completely absent right here. Huh. Further proof... That what happens right here is the rapture, the catching out, the calling away of all of those who trusted Christ as Savior. Not for being a good person, not for going to church. No. Only because of His shed blood paying the price for our sins. They get caught out. Which tells us that when this happens, all of the crazy stuff you've ever heard about the book of Revelation, it happens during this time here. This is not a good time. But that also tells us that if John is here and he was supposed to, as he was transported through time, he's supposed to write what he had seen, you realize what that means about the first three chapters of your Bible in the book of Revelation, specifically chapters 2 and 3? What blew my mind was that I always thought, okay, 90 A.D., that's when John wrote this book. That's when he sent it out, as we're going to see here in a little bit. So, that's it. The Bible's done in 90 A.D. There's no way we know what on earth happened from 90 A.D. up until this present point in time, waiting for Christ's return of the rapture. There's no way we can know it. We just have to go based upon what people have written in history. Has anybody ever played telephone here? Play the game telephone? We're like, if I whisper something to Brandon and he goes around and whispers it all throughout the room to all of you guys and you just pass it down all the way, by the time we get back to Andy, it's going to be something completely butchered. And no, that's not just because it's Andy. It's because that's just how things work. As we start passing things down the line, things get muddled. That's what you kind of get with history. That's why it's kind of hard to know for sure what really happened here. You know what's awesome about your Bible? As we're going to see, God is so good to us because since he had John transported through time and he told John, write the things you have seen as I'm transporting you. You know what we're going to see starting next week? God's giving us a little insight into church history. Lots happened in the last 2,000 years. How do you know what is true and what's not? We have the Bible to help guide us so that we can know. When we look at something in history, we compare it to what the Bible says, and God, if we believe what it says, will effectually work in us to know who's the liar in history and who's telling the truth. What really happened in this event here in Rome in history? What really happened over here in London, England at this time in history?
Hmm. Very, very interesting. And then, of course, we have what happens during the tribulation period for seven years. And then we have the second coming and the millennial reign of Christ. Do you realize what that means? From the beginning of time until the end of time, including the last 2,000 years of human history, you have everything you need contained within these two covers. This is no ordinary book. If you don't see that tonight, because again, tonight's just kind of introductory. We're going through some basic fundamentals of this book so that we have our understanding clearly lined up as to how things are going to go with the following chapters. If that doesn't, isn't clear for you, man, starting next week it will be. As we start looking to see what does the Bible have to say about the years between 90 A.D. to 200 A.D., and what actually happened in those moments in history. Starting next week, we're going to dig a dive into that. It's going to be huge. It's going to be huge. So on your outline here, if you haven't gotten it already, the basic outline is chapters 1 through 3, church history. Chapters 4 through 1910, it is the tribulation period. You should have a blank there on your outline, right? Yep. And then chapters 19, 10 to the end. It's the second coming of Christ, the millennial reign of Christ, and eternity future. It's a simple basic outline. In case anything of what I had up here on the screen was confusing for you, here's this. Don't worry. I'm going to give this to you guys next week. But you got to come back for it, though. This will be your physical handout for next week. Kind of gives you all the things that we just talked about. John's writing from here, chapter 4 of Revelation. And he's instructed, write the things you have seen, the things which are, the things which shall be hereafter. He's writing it on the Lord's day. Make sense? Any questions? I know that was some kind of gymnastics, but I don't know. How, how did I do on the board? Were you guys able to follow on the board? Stick figure John worked? All right, good. All right, three basic applications. All of Scripture has these three fundamental elements regarding how we can apply the Bible to our lives. It is a work of history. These things actually happened. But it's not just a book of history. It is a doctrinal book. There's teaching that's involved there. There's instructions for us to know. There's prophecy to learn. But then there's devotional. It doesn't just end with the cool nitty-gritties of the doctrine. The devotional application means, how does this apply to my life today? How does this old archaic book that was finished 2,000 years ago in the book of Revelation, but goodness, go back another 4,000 years before that for a book of Genesis, how does this apply to me today? Well, if you believe it, it will effectually work in you and it will apply to you today. But even with the book of Revelation, there are these three basic applications. Historically, this letter that John is writing, he was instructed to deliver it to seven churches in Asia Minor, which we'll see here in a little bit. They were the servants of Christ and to all who will read it to reveal the events of the coming day of the Lord. Now those seven churches that John was instructed to write to, what do you think they did when they opened up the letter from John? Oh, cool. The guy who was exiled on the island of Patmos, he wrote to us. Let's see what it says. What do you think they did? 
<laughs> got really confused? Well, in order to be confused, they would have had to first what? Read it. Read it. But think deeper than that. They didn't just read it as though it was the word of men, the words of John. They read it as it was in truth, the words of God. And what did they do then? They believed it. How do we know that? Go ahead, Andy. You can say it. Oh. They did that. They did that. How do we know that they effectually believed it and that it worked in them? Because we're reading it tonight. We have this letter because of faithful men and women of those seven churches who wrote this letter down and spread it far and wide to as many people as they possibly could. Sounds like our mission, doesn't it? To publish the work and the Word of God. That's the historical application. Doctrinally, what's the teaching? What's the prophetic teaching behind this? It's written to the servants of Christ and to all who will read it during the tribulation period to reveal the events that are unfolding all around them at this present time. Or at that present time, rather. Events too occur. But devotionally, how does it apply to us? It is written to teach us, the servants of Christ, the history of the church age, the events that will take place at the close of the church age dispensation, and the events surrounding the soon coming day of the Lord. Those are the context, the contextual stipulations of the book of Revelation. Any questions there? Well, with the time we have left tonight, let's read it. Chapter 1. It's the key chapter of the book. It's going to unlock everything for us. Key verses all throughout this. See, in chapter 1, we have it broken down in two ways. Verses 1 through 8, it's John and Jesus' personal introduction to the book of Revelation. Follow along with me as I read. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servants. Who? So right here in verse 1, we already have the title. We have the definition of the word revelation. We have the author of revelation. And we have the theme. All of it right there in verse 1. I'm telling you guys, you, those of you who read your Bibles regularly, are there not times where you're reading a certain book and you're like, I still don't really get what the main theme is of this book. I mean, I'm getting something out of it, but I don't really know what's the main theme. What is this book about? Sometimes you're actually reading it. I think, like, you know, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, I think it's not until you get to chapter 3 before the theme is actually revealed. Here, verse 1, right out of the gate. All of the core contextual elements are right there in verse 1. The point being, this book, although there's a lot of weird and freaky stuff in it, it's not that hard to get. It really isn't. We just need to believe what it says. It'll become very, very easy for us to understand. If we believe, not that these are the words of John, but as it is in truth, the Word of God. Like I said, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, get that verse down. Keep it in the forefront of your mind. Write it at the top of Revelation. On every page of Revelation, it is crucial to understanding. All right. Can I get a reader for verses uh, 2 to 4? Two through four, a reader. Ethan. To bear record, 
of the word of God, and of the testimony of Jesus Christ, and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. Actually, stop there. Again, verse 3 is a crucial key verse of this chapter, of this entire book. Blessed is he that what? Readeth. That's what those seven churches did. And they that hear the words of this prophecy and do what? That means obey. It means we do what this book is going to tell us to do. We're going to see again just how short of a time we have left before the church is no longer mentioned throughout the book of Revelation because chapter 4 is coming. We're living right here right now. We're actually probably right here. Actually, closer than that. we got to be found keeping those things that are written. Why? For the time is at hand. I'll read verse 4. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Brandon mentioned it earlier. You know what's interesting about this book? Seven shows up again and again and again and again and again and again all throughout it. Anybody tell me, those of you who are students of Bible study, what does the number seven signify in the Bible? Say it again, Brandon. Completion. Completion. Perfection. It's, it's God's pattern. He established it in Genesis. Seven days of what? Creation. And when you follow that number all throughout the Bible, you see that it always follows that pattern of God completing things, of perfecting things, of things being in order. This is absolutely crucial and key to our understanding of this book because when we start going into church history next week, just as there's three basic applications for the entire letter of Revelation, you need to understand that there are three basic applications for church history. Again, who is John instructed to write this letter of Revelation to? How many churches? Seven churches. Historically speaking, these seven churches, and if you're one to take notes, you might want to mark these down. These seven churches were seven literal churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. They actually existed all along the coastal line of Turkey. Historically speaking, they existed. Seven churches. Devotionally speaking, practically, and honestly, this is probably where we're going to spend a lot of our time in the next couple of weeks looking at these seven letters in chapters 2 and 3. But devotionally speaking, you realize that the things that God has to say to those seven churches, their characteristics and their qualities of types of Christians today. Their character qualities of the types of churches that we see in today's society. They all practically apply to us. Sometimes we can be like the church in Pergamos if we're not careful. Some of you in here, you're the church of Ephesus. Come back next week if you want to know what they did. Hopefully we strive to be like Philadelphia. So again, devotionally, it all pra it's practical. They're, they're representative of all different types of churches and Christians today. But doctrinally speaking, because again, seven means something. And God is a God of patterns. 
Doctrinally speaking, prophetically speaking, these seven churches, they represent seven periods of time from 90 AD up to this present year. We're going to show you just how over the course of the next seven to eight weeks. I'm telling you, it's my most favorite class to teach in this entire church is that you do not want to miss it. God is a God of patterns. He has established that. We see it here in verse 4 with Him starting with the, the seven spirits. Verses 5 through 8. I need a reader for that. Carson. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto Him that loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and His Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is, and which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. A couple things to point out on that real quick. Verse 5, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins with our good works. Is that what it says? No, his own blood. Jesus Christ, long before any of us were born, was thinking of you, knew you, created you, and died for you before any of you were even born. Shed his blood on a cross. Died a thief's death. Died a murderer's death on a cross to pay the price for your sin. Washed us. We are made clean because of his blood. Those of us who are saved in here, those of us who are going to go up in Revelation chapter 4 when heaven opens up and we hear that voice come up hither, it's not because of any righteousness which we have done. It's not because of any righteous work we have. No, it's only because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ who did no sin and was perfect in all of His ways. And He took our place on the cross to die our death so that we don't have to be separated from Him. And all those who call upon Him to save them, we are saved. And we're going to be up here with Him, and we're going to be coming back down with Him in Revelation 19.10. But it's not because of works. It is by the blood. Do you see why this chapter is so big on revealing who Jesus Christ is? It reveals the very mode of salvation that is not about works. It's not about church attendance. It's not about your baptism or what you've done or haven't done. Only by the blood. This is God revealing to all of mankind who He is in glorious fashion. And because we have received Him, because we have called upon Him, verse 6, it says He's made us kings and priests. That is an interesting thing. Verse Peter chapter 2, I believe this is verse 5, yeah. It says, Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. And then in verse 9, he says again, Ye, you guys who are saved, you are a chosen generation, a royal king priesthood. You know what that means? That because we have, we have received Christ as our Savior, we have direct access to God the Father. We can go directly to Him. Just like those Old Testament priests in the Old Testament, they were the only ones who could go into the Holy of Holies, into the tabernacle to offer the offerings of sin. They were the only ones. They were the only ones that had direct access to Him. Now, because of Jesus Christ, we all have direct access to Him. You don't need to come to me to pray for you. 
You don't need to go to a pastor or a priest. You don't have to go to anybody. You can go directly to God. You have direct access to Him, and you can hear from Him in the Word of God. Man. In verse 7, he's talking about everyone's going to see Him. Every eye that pierced Him. Think about that when you walk the schools of your hallway tomorrow. The hallways of your schools tomorrow, rather. Think about that. Everybody that you lay eyes on, because of their sins and because they were born in their sins, they pierced Him. They put Him on the cross. Our sins put Him there. Them living in rebellion and direct opposition to God, this is them here. One day when He comes back, every eye is going to see Him. Everyone. That includes the people that are in your sphere of influence. Look at verse 9. Can I get a reader for verses 9 through 11? Mm, Kendall. I, John, am also your Pause right there. Mark it down. You want to take a stand for God in this world? You want to do what's right? You want to be the disciple whom Jesus loved? It's going to come at a cost. Anybody know what 2 Timothy 3.12 says? Write it down if you don't and look at it later. Sam, what does it say? We'll live godly, but I'll let it slide. If you want to live for God, you want to walk with God, it's going to come at a cost. What are you prepared to go through? He was prepared to go through the hell of the cross for you. What are you prepared to go through for Him? Okay, continue, verses 10 to 11. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice of the trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book, send it unto the seven churches. Thyatira. One last thing I want to mention about these churches here. You know what boggles my mind too about this? God laid these churches out in chronological order to the time frame that they occur in. Again, when we get through it, it's going to blow your mind. Just wait and come back. You'll see. Verse 11. So... Jesus Christ is showing Himself here to John. And we're going to jump ahead. I want you guys to read the rest of the chapter tonight, but I wanted to show you guys, uh, look at verse 14. This is John describing what he sees as Jesus Christ. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. That's a different picture of Jesus we don't often see, is it? His eyes were as a flame of fire. You know what a fire does? Consumes everything in its path. There is nothing that he doesn't see. In the privacy of our room, when we think that nobody else from church is around, how we are with our friends at school or our family members who maybe don't go to church, he sees it all. The thoughts we have, he sees it all. We can't escape from his eyes. This is a holy God. Look at verse 615. And his feet like unto fine brass as if they burned in a furnace. You want to trace brass throughout the scriptures. You know what you'll find? It's a picture of judgment. 
because judgment's about to come. This is who Jesus Christ is as he's revealing himself to John. A little bit different than the pictures we see in our Bibles when we were kids, isn't it? Because this is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he had it in his hand, verse 16, seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. That's the word of God. That's the Bible. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when you spend time with him, when you walk with him, you will shine your light too in this dark world. I am he that liveth, verse 18. Actually, verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at my feet as dead. This is what it should be like when we really catch a glimpse of who Christ is. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. We already saw he gives his commission to John in verse 19. And John starts doing it. And next week we're going to see, boom, these seven letters. Here's what Jesus Christ wants to say to these seven churches. These real churches of 90 A.D., these types of Christians that you and I see and can be today. But prophetically, doctrinally, bigger picture, seven areas, seven periods of time throughout the last 2,000 years, God gave us history in advance of everything. If you don't believe me, good. Believe the book and you'll see how next week. Let's pray.